Okay, fair enough, I'ma quit stalling it and mean to keep you waiting, but with inspiration calling, that's the time that I react, and no time for that, I'm aware of my path, yeah, no holding back, cause we strixing is huh, constriction, scissor kick, bullshit from my direction, friction, what some think is fiction, I'm fixing to mix this elixir without chemical tricks in my selection, only here to exceed indeed, you needn't concern yourself about me, just be, I'm seething with the energies I've seen since teething, some find it repulsive or claim it's misleading, but I'm the only all in this hole in the wall, the holy holder of the note, I promote the fall, summon up all of these pearls, hold my calls. Operator. Welcome back to Black Hoodie Alchemy, folks. As always, I am your host, Anthony Tyler. Um, I'm sitting here digitally, um, unfortunately, but it's a pleasure to be here uh, with my special guest, Mr. P.D. Newman. Uh, before I uh, I volley over to you there, man, um, I'll give you a little bit of an introduction because this guy is, you know, without, he's a humble dude. Uh, you know, this is our first time officially talking, but we've known each other as um, casual acquaintances through the research um, uh, community for, I don't know, at least a year or two, maybe now. And uh, this dude is just like the genuine embodiment other than me, I guess, um, of what this show kind of is, you know, this show is obviously uh, naturally an extension of myself, but Mr. PD Newman here, this guy is, you know, he's even, um, produced some hip hop beats. I will, uh, by the time this is all edited out, we're going to have, uh, an introduction. Uh, the, the track is going to be quit stalling featuring Mocha only, which is an underground rapper that probably at least a couple of, you know, I certainly knew of him. Uh, so this guy's multifaceted. Uh, he might sound like just an old school hippie, but He's a lot more than that. Um, he is a very accredited researcher. Um, he's written several books, um, such as, you know, he's got some coming out that I'm sure he'll be um, more than happy to talk about here. But uh, he's had books like Alchemically Stoned going into um, Masonic philosophy and not just that, but uh, the esoteric histories of uh, a lot of different entheogens. Um, he also had a book that I uh, finished recently, uh, Angels in Vermilion, from D to DMT, um, making a very strong case for the uh, the the famous old school alchemist John D, um, developer of the Enochian magical system with Edward Kelly, um, uh, making a strong case that they were not just like using a DMT component, but actually smoking it, um, which is especially interesting. Um, you are really just the embodiment of um of of an alchemist man and uh uh in, in the truly in the modern era and um uh it's a pleasure to have you on how you doing dude yeah thank you you're far too generous <laughs> uh, i'm doing great I've, I've been looking forward to this yeah likewise well i wouldn't just hand the compliments out to anybody um and part of your Humble nature is why I give it so freely. You're a real genuine dude, and uh, I, this is definitely going to be a good time. We have mutual friends as well, like that have been on uh, as guests on this show, like Mike Mazzy of the Mind Escape podcast and Alex of the Natural Born Alchemist, and so forth. But um, um, w and there's a lot of different stuff we could talk about. But 
Um, I don't know if uh, real quick, right out the gate, if you want to give people some websites or talk about some uh, new material you've got coming out or anything like that. I don't have any uh, permanent web presence outside of my social media accounts, but um, I do have a book coming out December 5th uh, called Theurgy, Theory and Practice. That's uh, It's really the first work of its kind that focuses on the both the the like it says the theory and the practice of theurgy usually when you get into theurgic texts uh, and trying to navigate that territory you feel you you re- realize very quickly that um most authors presented as theory with no practice and that's it's to be expected because the only place where it's spelled out what the ritual looks like is in a, a commentary on Plato's Republic, written by a very famous Neoplatonist named Proclus, who was also a very prolific author. And um, he didn't just write a lot of books. His books are several volumes long. So it, it's been kind of uh, just hiding there with, you know, I, I could probably count on one hand the number of authors who reference it but they never really spell it out and uh, tell the practitioner how to do it and that's what that's the real beauty of of that book and i've got one coming out it'll probably be 2024 it's also with inner traditions baron company uh, that looks at native american shamanism in the mississippi valley and uh, the the real kind of bomb i drop on the reader in there is that uh, the Native Americans of the Southeast were using an ayahuasca analog, which I, I'm tentatively calling misahuasca. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, completely. I, I, did, I didn't believe that this could possibly be what I was looking at. But the more I really broke it down and delved into it and then finally found the uh, the dead giveaways and uh, um, some some texts from the 19th century by a man named James Mooney. Um, who spent a lot of time with the peyotists. Uh, so yeah, those those will be out, uh, like I said, December 5th of this year and probably 2024, or maybe around the summer for the second book. Interesting. So keep an eye out for uh, for those releases. You're a guy that like really lives and breathes this stuff. Like you're not just going through texts, but you're also putting it into experimentation and practice. And uh um, you're making tinctures all the time. Um, like the really, you know, I think most listeners will be familiar, but for anybody that isn't familiar, um, <clears throat> for anybody that isn't familiar, the honestly, even more than metallurgy, probably the most traditional alchemical motif, I would say, is botany to a degree or another and uh, everything that comes with that. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, uh, even so, alchemy. The the very phrase of alchemy, alchemia, the term, comes from an Egyptian Gnostic named Zosimos, and he he writes in a language that sounds like he's talking about metallurgy, but in his his letter to he has several of them, but in one of the letters to his student is a woman named Theosabia. Um. She's saying to him, I don't understand what any of this stuff has to do with my soul, because uh, uh, he told her he has this this mode of basically 
extracting the soul from the body in the same way that you would extract uh, an essence from a substance. And um, But what he's saying is all about cinnabar, uh, which is a mineral that's uh, composed of sulfur and mercury, which already that's two of the what became the three essences of alchemy, the salt being added later. But um, yeah, he's telling her how to get this red substance out of cinnabar. And cinnabar is already red. It's how you prepare a, a pigment called vermilion. But he mm -hmm. says to her that he's not actually talking about cinnabar, that when he says cinnabar, he's referring to acacia. And he says this outright. Um, and he says that he he's concealing it under the language of metallurgy um, because that's their tradition. He learned from a woman named Maria Prophetissima or Maria the Prophetess. And he's saying that we use the language of any art whose processes are similar to the processes we're using. And so what came about was a, a metallurgical language. And he was familiar with that because at his profession, outside of being an alchemist, he he made statues and for uh, Egyptians and, and Egyptian priests. And uh, he didn't just make any statue. He made what, what are called animated statues. And I don't mean mechanical contrivances that moved around. I mean, anima as in, as in soul. He would ensoul these statues with various deities. And one of the means by which you can capture the essence of a deity is through coloring these metals. So he did he did have this practice that he was very adept at, at, at tincturing or dyeing metals to be the proper colors to harness these energies. So he does, he is a metallurgist, but he very plainly says to Theosabia that what he's talking about is not metallurgy. And statue animation and alchemy already are very similar techniques they both uh they both strive to arrive at what plato called the forms the, these essences and where alchemy strives to arrive at it through purgation by stripping the prima materia stripping the matter you're starting with of everything superfluous except for the essence the one thing and that would be the form they're trying to capture. Whereas in statue animation, they're striving to arrive at the same thing, capturing this essence, but they do it through combining elements from every kingdom of nature into one thing. And uh, Iamblichus talks about this. It's, it's even mentioned in the Corpus Hermeticum, but basically if we were talking about a statue of a solar deity, well, from the mineral kingdom, you would take gold, it, it being the metal that corresponds to the sun. And from the plant kingdom, you would take maybe acacia or heliotrope or sunflowers. Uh, and then from the animal kingdom, parts from a lion or a rooster, and particularly the parts that correspond to the sun. Uh, the heart corresponds to the sun in alchemy. Each organ, each of the major seven major organs corresponds to a different planet. So they would take you know, hearts of lions and sometimes entire lions. The, the the entire tradition of mummification in ancient Egypt is basically an attempt to do this, to turn to, to turn the remains of 
a being into an animated statue. Uh, mm. So they're, they're, uh, alchemy and, and statue animation are, are very similar in their, their, their goals. Wow. Fascinating. And so just like concisely put, um, yeah, alchemy is at it at, at its best is described as something that uh, can be explained through many different templates. Um, and to say the least now as a little bit of a left field, what do you think actually about the, uh, the classical lead to gold thing? I've heard some wild theories that even like persist today of uh, like bombarding metals with radiation and potentially shifting the atomic scale. What do you think about all that? Well, there's no question that scientists have figured out a way to turn base metals into gold, but the process is, it's not something that an ancient person could have arrived at. Mm. And that, that trope is a metaphor in the early literature. Um, basically saying that alchemy has the means of turn to turn base consciousness into illumination or enlightenment so it, it it has more to do with the initiation and perfection of both a substance and a, a human more than it does literally turning one thing into another. And, and there's a, a comment from Zosimos where he says that uh, the true adepts of alchemy know this, that each substance is already what it is, and you can't turn it into something else. Yeah, dense in the best kinds of ways i could describe similar things but man you are so you're like a walking encyclopedia you you're and you're clearly currently entrenched in research which is which is even better because man, you're quick with the the uh the, the specifics of it all and i love it um and so i want to yeah thank you um i want to specifically give me both barrels um i want everything you got maybe for funsies, we could start off with tobacco uh, because people don't talk about that much at all. Uh, but I really want to talk about cannabis and tobacco in the alchemical, uh, just, you know, sacramental, you know, in that archetypal sense, because, uh, you know, I certainly won't make this about me, but, you know, and if anyone's listened to this show or knows anything about me, um, cannabis is, you know, I wouldn't be the person I am today without it. And uh mm -hmm. It's been something that has um, benefited me a great deal, and it's helped me learn a lot about myself, uh, just in ways of like finally being able to um, relax and come to terms with some anxieties that uh, just chronic anxieties and things that I grew up with, but also learning the difference between, um, you know, just the abuse of something like, you know, the, the nuances of self-medication, because I, don't, I certainly don't think that self-medication is inherently a bad thing. I mm -hmm. mean, just drinking a coffee in the morning, that could be self-medication. Um, you know, you know the drill, but uh, um, cannabis has been something it's almost like for me, you know, I didn't get into it because of like Cheech and Chong or anything like that. No, you know, the, I love them for what they are, but it wasn't cannabis culture that sucked me in. It was uh, finding a relief that I could trust, you know, it felt good. And I, there was enough science to show that it wasn't going to really bite me in the ass any more than, you know, uh, just, 
you can form bad habits with anything. You can have too much tar in your lungs, et cetera. But, uh, um, and it's kind of like, it's been a totem for me. Um, it's, uh, kind of in the, the spinning top sense, uh, in the, the inception metaphor. Um, it's something that I hold very sacred. Um, like I said, I wouldn't be, uh, who I am today without it. And I think that, um, you know, everything, everything can be abused. Um, and I'm not saying I don't use it just to get stoned, but, um, it's a, it's a, it's been interesting for me before I toss this over to you. Um, cause I grew up, you know, I'm like 27 now. So when I was in high school, you know, there was, there was like shops in Cali, things like that. It wasn't, it hadn't really, um, busted into the mainstream like it has now. Uh, so I still wasn't even seeing this kind of stuff and thinking like, though I'd be working in the cannabis industry. Um, I never thought that, uh, that would really be a thing. And so to see where it's come now, um, is, yeah, it's kind of dizzying. It's all happened so quickly and, Mm -hmm. um, sort of bridging the gap between like the mainstream and the corporatization of cannabis, uh, and, you know, just kind of stoner culture in general, there's nothing inherently wrong with those things. And I enjoy those things, but a lot of this, uh, alchemical, history is completely lost and you ask uh, unfortunately i feel like if you ask most stoners today they don't even know that cannabis is something that's been used sacramentally in you know the world over essentially for thousands of years um and you know the the most they know is like the nixon era forward so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um i guess that was a good Segue. Let's talk about cannabis first, since I did all yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was a daily smoker for thirty years, and uh, it absolutely changed my life. Um, and e- even <clears throat> people who are familiar with the religious use of cannabis in the East um, aren't aware of its use in the West. It's it's been totally obscured, and um, but it was it was set central to. Uh, various occult movements uh, and you can find references to it um, that are talking about in good and bad terms and in, in occult literature but even when they're talking they're talking about it in a negative it's clear from their language that they're talking about it from personal experience mm-hmm. so they they were using it and, and it became particularly famous uh, in occult circles in and around what's called the 19th century occult revival, um, where a man named Pascal Beverly Randolph, who was an African-American uh, Rosicrucian and sex magician, he he started the first, quote unquote, Rosicrucian society on American soil. Uh, and he, he called it Fraternitas Rosicrucius. This was eventually taken over by uh, Swinburne Clymer, who was something of a shyster. In himself, uh, but Randolph he created two medications from it that uh, he, he it, it almost we don't know what it was because there are none left that can't be analyzed. But he was the largest importer of cannabis and hashish during his time into America, and he created two substances. He said he could extract from it that worked on two different things, and it sounds very much like he may have discovered CBD and THC on his own. And in the late 1800s, wow, and 
from his usage, um, an organization emerged called the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. Mm, okay, in, okay. In the literature, you'll see it just called HBL because they they considered the name of the order secret. And, but this was the first um, Hermetic order uh, that existed. It preceded the Hermetic order of the Golden Dawn. And right. Okay. That's why I've heard focused, that name before. Okay. They focused entirely on practical magic. And this was originally the focus of the Theosophical Society it was practical magic. And when they had their meeting in New York that led to the creation of the society, they decided that they would use the textbook of this brilliant woman named Emma Harding or Hardinge Britton. And it was published under her husband's name because that's just kind of how, how women did it at the time. They would publish it under the name of her, their husband. But she was far brighter than her husband. <laughs> and there are references throughout this book on how to communicate with celestial beings. And in chapter five, I think she says the the, the most powerful mode of communicating with them is learning how to induce trance. And she says that the best way to induce trance is with the use of various substances. And she names hashish, she names nitrous oxide, um, and she even says the distillations of two or three acrid fungi. So she's even talking about using mushrooms this early. And what's so fascinating about this is psilocybin mushrooms didn't come to the attention of the broader West until the publication of R. Gordon Wasson's picture essay in Life magazine in 1957 that documented his trip to Mexico where um, the curandera Maria Sabina gave him uh, if I recall correctly, psilocybe mexicana. Um, so the only psychedelic mushroom that was known then was the Amanita muscaria that, that's referenced in, it shows up in uh, a, a book called The Seven Sisters of Sleep that's discussing the seven major intoxicants known to the Victorian era. So we know that was pretty well known. It, it has references in lots of different places, um, but we we didn't know about the others. So the fact that she cites two or three is incredibly interesting. And they had, when they started this organization, they had a meeting where the vice president, uh, this man named George Felt, was going to prove to everyone present the, the effectiveness of magic. And he was going to do this by invoking elementals to visual appearance for everyone present and the way he did this was by burning an unknown substance on mm -hmm. charcoal that immediately and this is in in um, colonel alcott's diary leaves book uh, everyone in there it, it caused basically an up a riot in this place everyone was so terrified because they were seeing these elemental beings that <laughs> Alcott described as looking like the demons from Francis Barrett's The Magus. And those drawings in there were influenced by the demons that show up in uh, in the Goetia. If you've seen okay. those half man, half beast, some of them look like spiders with men's heads. And yeah. these things wow. were running all over the place in this wow. room. And um, it, it, it very well could have been dmt that they were using that he was burning but we don't know because immediately after this he disappeared 
And this caused Blavatsky to create what John Patrick Davini, who is also the biographer of Pascal Beverly Randolph, what he calls the second theosophical society. And at this point, Blavatsky says, we're not going to focus anymore on actual magic, on practical magic. We're just going to focus on the theory, theoretical stuff. And this focus on theory led people to members to to search out another organization that would give them the practical side of it. And the organization they all end up turning to in droves, members of the Theosophical Society, if they weren't leaving the Theosophical Society to join, they were joining both. And it's the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. And they had a self-initiation technique where when you joined, they'd send you this, this packet of papers um, on how to initiate yourself. And it's a very simple ritual. Um, yeah, I think you face north, you do LFS, Levy's invocation of the elementals, um, you say certain prayers, and then you drink an elixir that they send to you through the mail that, huh. that they claim to be the true Soma. Uh, and Soma being the ancient Vedic, uh, it, it's a deity, it's a moon god, and it's also a plant. But what that plant was, scholars argue about it to this day. But it's clear that at that time, the 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 consensus among practitioners was that soma was cannabis, and <clears throat> uh, one there was a member from the Golden Dawn who was also a member of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor named um, Aiton, Reverend Aiton. And he was writing to an American student about his experience in the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor. And he said that he had gotten this vial of the true Soma. And he said, having grown up around drugs and been involved with with different drugs my whole life, he said, I smelled of it and immediately suspected that what he thought it was. And uh, and he says after he drank it, he realized that that's indeed what it was referring to cannabis. So. Cannabis from from the very beginnings of of what we would recognize as occult orders has been present, uh, and and there's a, a, another group <clears throat> that that emerged before the Golden Dawn called the Martinists, um, founded by primarily by a man named Gerard and Coss, uh, who's better known by his pen name Papus or Papus, um, and they they don't write he he writes about hashish he writes about using it in his book on magic where he says that uh, those intoxicated with hashish can look at a chandelier and they'll see it lit up with ten thousand lights and dripping jewels and you know giving this beautiful description <laughs> of cannabis intoxication um, but the martinists themselves there's no evidence that they were using cannabis until um the, the famous occult author, uh, author, Arthur Edward Waite, he went to France to be initiated into Martinism and to learn from them. And they turned him on to hashish. William Booth, Martin Booth, excuse me, Martin Booth discusses this in his book on the, the history of cannabis. But so Waite recorded that the Martinists were using hashish. And of course, um, Alistair Crowley, uh, Yeats, um, um, lo loads of occultists came out of that Golden Dawn 
camp. Mm-hmm. And again, while the Golden Dawn never discusses using hashish, all of these guys do discuss using it. <laughs> Most um, certainly. Alan ben- Benton was a, uh, he was Alistair Crowley's um, kind of like a mentor in the Golden Dawn. And both of them had asthma and both of them were intensely interested in ceremonial magic. And uh, Benton had years and years of experience using different entheogenic drugs to treat his asthma. So Crowley moved in with him and he taught him everything he knew. And one of the things they focused on was, was how to use hashish both as a medicine and as a magical tool. And of course, Crowley um, really, really grabbed hold of it. And it it basically informed his entire career. Mm. Um, Yeats is another one. He he lived with, and, and, Somewhere in Europe, he was living with Arthur Simmons, I think was his name. He's a poet. Um, And they were experimenting with hashish. And it it resulted in an entire book. Yeats wrote um, something about the Rose Cross. I can't remember the exact title, but it's something like that. that, That's all based around his his ecstasies experience from hashish. And around the same time, both the poets, Yeats and Simmons, um, met a psychologist, a psychiatrist named Havelock Ellis, who was doing a lot of experimentation with the newly discovered psychedelic chemical mescaline that comes from peyote and San Pedro cacti. And two of his test subjects were William Butler Yeats and Arthur Simmons. So they even they were even taking mescaline, uh, which if you have any experience with that, you know how absolutely powerful it can be <laughs> you got substance quit stalling and drop the shit uh-huh. i strut with two balls and a blocking stick for ears to hear and eyes to see you know the code you know the roads filled with peril especially when you're going from labor to refreshment cats try to steal your essence without your blessing but ain't done the work and didn't even heed the lesson i ain't give nothing for free my words resting with my body if it comes to that perpetrators won't be sailing anywhere in fact with no pass and they try to cover up the act but the immortal emblem over me is like a flag and a few of the craft is gonna need the proper grip that don't slip to raise it up like a rocket ship living perpendicular no refute once my words is gone you'll have to make do with the substitute good luck hello is this thing on okay please edit this out for me um but uh my name is Steve Buscemi, formerly known as uh, Jefferson Tillamook Slinger. As many of you know, I am a big fan of the Highlander movies and television show, but many of you may not know how confusing and fucking stupid that the the whole uh, storyline is. And I'm here to tell you, as a public service announcement to all them them youngins out there that don't understand the Highlander franchise, it's okay. You're not alone. And if it makes you feel any better, basically the director's cut of the first movie and the TV show are the only things you really need to pay attention to. Everything else is just retconned bullshit. And uh, it's a mockery. Um, So, just forget about 
you know, the second and third movies and all those sci-fi channel movies, it was all not good. Um, it just served to confuse people, and even the people involved with those projects have pretty much said, don't think of those as an official story, so don't worry, maybe you can rest easy at night. But the fact of the matter is, the Highlander series might be perhaps the biggest botch in all of nerd culture history. Um, uh, next to things like uh, the movie Jumper with Hayden Christensen. Could have been great was not very great also uh die hard was a christmas movie and i am a classy movie critic <clears throat> oh god i am apex monsoon the cosmic ghost pirate the last uh, quarter of sales have not been too great for my dolphin pirate tarot deck not many of you have been interested, and, uh, you know, that's fine. I've, I'm brimming with good ideas. I'm a pirate anyway. Arg! So, er, uh, what I've done is, um, I've created Apex Monsoon's Cosmic Pirate Space Rum. Spiced Space Rum, matey. That's right. I've taken Caribbean Rum. Kirkland Caribbean rum and I've thrown that um that pulpery that's sprayed with synthetic cannabinoids that you can get at gas stations where it's not illegal now and um I've got that floating in the Kirkland spiced rum and I've also um thrown a little mini umbrella in there and put a cork on top and it's my apex monsoon cosmic pirate space rum Get it now at tippypetson.government forward slash ddu. Arg! Do it now! I'm a pirate, matey! Arg! Yeah, okay. Cool. Hello, everybody. Right, y'all, mate. It's, uh, it's, in, it's your girl, French Silverback Commando here. Um, so... You know, uh, I'm still selling the old uh, dolphin glue in there gel, but, um, you know, um, gotta do a little bit of a PSA here because um, I do not have enough uh, dolphin grade LSD strips to be supplying uh, every single order of the dolphin glue in there gel with. So if you received a uh, uh, an order with the promise of the strip of LSD and you, you didn't get it. Uh, sorry, he, he, I'm, um, I did not expect so many people to notice and I just don't have enough to share. So, also, I've, I've got to go back to the drawing board a little bit, I think, because I think I might have been giving too many of these dolphins, these dolphins, a bit too much of the LSDs uh, because one of them recently popped on me like a balloon. Oh, I... Uh, not sure. I'm gonna have to figure that one out a bit. Uh, but in the meantime, you can still get the uh, dolphin glue in there, Joe. Um, for holding on to your toupees or your dentures or, or making your toys creepy crawl. That's it for now. Take care, everybody. Hello, everybody. I'm glad to be speaking with you again. 
I just finished polishing off a bowl of DMT, and my brain feels like a light bright Brotendo. Just so you know, Muscle Tornado has heard your requests for DVDs and not VHS tapes of my uh, dolphin safety, no, alligator safety, and hook hand combat techniques. Uh, but I've I've sunk all my funds into tapes. I knew that records were coming back, um, but I, I thought that tapes would be as well. And they're not. Um, but anybody that has Walkmans out there, you can definitely get uh, my hook hand combat alligator safety techniques. I was uh, recently reading online about how alligators communicate through a series of whistles and clicks, and I think I may incorporate that into my next volume edition. But uh, I still can't make DVDs or CDs. I don't, I don't even really know how to. Um, but I promise that I will be pressing some vinyl with the next release. This is Muscle Tornado, over and out. Uh, absolutely. I've never tried mescaline uh, myself. That is something um, that I honestly, um, candidly, would very much like to try. But I've I've tried uh, plenty of LSD and mushrooms already. So It's similar yeah. to that, only... It's it's quite different in that, in my experience with LSD and especially with regular mushroom doses, um, not super heroic doses, where, <laughs> where you know twenty and thirty grams. Um, but it, oh, but, damn! Have you ever had twenty or thirty grams? Oh yeah! Holy yeah. shit! What? Uh, just sidebar. What was that like? A, a little bit. <laughs> I've yeah, had half an ounce. I've had like fourteen grams. Uh, I've never had 20 to 30. That's, that is super heroic. <laughs> well, you know, I grew up in the deep South where right. they grow wild on, <laughs> on cow feces. So long as those cows are fed corn and there are cow fields everywhere in Mississippi. So you know, since I was about 11, my brother and I were picking and eating mushrooms and um, we were doing it all the time. So <laughs> you got to keep in mind we had a, a tolerance so when we when i was taking sure yeah friends, you know it 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 sounds like it was more than it than it was but even so those experiences are they uh, for example my wife and i we each took about around 30 grams in my dorm room in college <laughs> and um this was the first time i had experienced um the stage three of uh um of oh, i forget his name williams lewis david williams lewis of his uh three stages of trance where stage three is where you're fully immersed in the experience you don't even remember remember that you're on a drug and it's like you've become the star of this movie kind of this surreal mm, i feel setting. you and that that was the 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 only time I had experienced that as a young man was on that, that high dose, but with mescaline, it's different from regular mushroom dose. And by regular, I mean, seven grams or, or less, um, in that on, in, in those ecstasies, I know I'm on mushrooms and, you know, I might experience quote unquote ego death and lose touch with who I am and what I am. And if I am, but at no point 
did I hallucinate and think what I was seeing was real? I, I right. did on the 30 grams. I did have experiences like that. But with mescaline, it was the first drug that I took where I I was seeing something that looked absolutely real with my eyes open. I was seeing myself, my doppelganger, and it, it was a, uh, it it was me, but he had red eyes and he, he was like hunting me like a predator would hunt prey and he would mirror wow. all of my movements. So I'm sitting outside um, next to a pool in a, in a swing and he's across the pool from me sitting on um, like a, a fold out chair, like a beach chair. And every time I'd stand up and walk, he would stand up and walk exactly opposite me so we were constantly circ so i was circling the pool because i wanted to get away from him but i couldn't because everywhere i went he was right there with me and uh that was on mescaline and it, it was absolutely frightening experience that is fucking bonkers dude and i i i feel where you're coming from i've had like flashes of similar kinds of things um it's like i i I'd be interested to hear how that's that that trip resolved itself or how you resolved that trip because uh it seems like one of those things I can relate to in the sense of it it feels like the the quote unquote trip is going off the rails maybe but you're not the there's something common about the like the collective usage of the idea of the bad trip where like you get lost in it and you uh you're not even really differentiating too much. You're just kind of in panic mode. It's just kind of like a psychedelic panic attack, I guess mm -hmm. you could say. But this is like a lucid bad dream that you're like, that is being projected that you're weaving through. And yeah, that is truly very fascinating. I, I wouldn't I, call it a bad trip. I, I personally don't believe right. that phrase. Even the, maybe especially the bad trips for me are the most meaningful they're the most I would agree life changing you know rarely do we have the courage to confront what carl jung called the shadow your sh your, your shadow personality and that's exactly what it was it was shadowing me you know it was uh, the epitome of of a shadow encounter but i i left that experience feeling like like i had i had gone through therapy or something, which is really common for people to say, you know, after Lily, uh, excuse me, um, Timothy Leary's experience with mushrooms with the same woman that gave them to Wasson, Maria Sabina, he said that he learned more about psychology in those four hours than he had his, in his entire career as a psychiatrist. And he was a, a Harvard professor. So he had plenty of experience with psychiatry and so that that's really kind of a um, a cliche at this point, but it, but that's exactly what it was. It was like, it was like I had this weight just gone off of me. Uh, I, it, one thing about the way the hallucination looked was it was me, but it was me maybe three or four years prior to that. So it was a younger me, and it was wow. it was a, a a more reckless me, you know, and and I felt like that experience gave me some distance from who I was before I knew who I was and who I was as a man, you know, coming into manhood and the, the rites of rites of passage, the transition that happens psychologically when you become a man. Um, 
I, I felt not that I lost it, but that I wasn't ruled by it so much after that. Wow. Uh, fascinating. And um, if you could open up this can of worms a bit more, um, because this was pretty much going to be my next question. Um, as we talk about, um, you know, uh, namely cannabis and tobacco a bit more, um, could you elaborate for um, listeners in general? Um, because, I mean, especially if you've uh, listened to prior episodes of the show, you're pretty familiar, but um, P.D. Newman's got some special insight here. And what are people really doing? Um, like, so clearly um, with all these uh, different metaphors and allegories, um, among other things, there's a lot of um, of um, you know psychoactive chemicals involved and you know, even if there isn't, it all seems to be, and even if you're fascinated with things in the exterior, there's always this tenet of the psychological or spiritual uh, purification. And that seems to be the heart of what, uh, like any sort of concrete, if you want any sort of practical, like non-metaphysical takeaway, even, um, that seems to be a concrete takeaway. Um, and so... I guess what I'm asking is when when we're talking about things like practical magic and people, you know, using these uh these chemicals to get into trance states, um like what how would you describe what is going on? What kind of catharsis is happening? What are the limits and like what are what do you see as the scope of this? What are we tapping into? Like, you know, just mm -hmm. go crazy. Give us what you got. Well, I think there are two levels to any experience. There's the, the qualitative side and there's the quantitative side. And the, the quantitative is the objective side that we would tend to reduce to psychology, to a psychological experience and the benefits you get psychologically from these experiences, which is like, like what I just said about transition into manhood. Mm -hmm. um, but qualitatively, you know, it it doesn't matter if it's not real. It is it, it's real in the moment, and it, you're experiencing it as something real. A good example is um, heliocentrism versus uh, um, geocentrism or georeferential astrology. And right, right. The ancient times when astrology was developing, Earth was the referential point. It was seen as the center of the scheme with and we as men on earth experience the sun rising in the east and setting in the west we don't experience the earth rotating and orbiting so qualitatively we have this experience that we literally construct our language around um, dawning and the or orientation when we say i need to get oriented the orient is the east where the sun rises you know we we're qualitatively that's the experience but qu quantitatively we know that's wrong and we know that the earth should not be at the center and i think these psychedelic experiences uh, if you'll excuse such a crude metaphor they they they're a lot like that in that when you're having an encounter with something that seems to be a spiritual being that is not objective no one else can see it but that doesn't change the effect it has on you in the same way that the effect the sun has on us as it rises in the east and sets in the west um 
if you're encountering a, an entity like which is the common trope now with with DMT and ayahuasca because it is so it is so common because those drugs throw you state throw you straight into what David Williams Lewis called the third stage of trance where you're you're in the middle of it you're encountering a being that it seems to be conscious of you and oftentimes will impart information that you had never considered before in your life had never thought of mm-hmm. so and in regard to the psychological the quantitative approach it it it's it just pales because you say well i couldn't have known that and it it completely changes you some of these experiences you leave never the same um and, and I think that's that's really how some of these things were used in, for example, initiatory societies, not necessarily in a magical setting, but in an initiatory setting um, where you're only given the drug once and it's during your initiation into an order. And the real beauty of that, that approach is it, 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 it removes your reliance on faith. You know, if someone tells you that doing a certain ritual has this effect in the astral or whatever you want to call it. Um, You're taking that on faith until you become so adept at the ritual that you can get your own results. But when you're thrown off in the deep end and you're surrounded by beings that just like I just described, that are not objective, no one else can see them. It immediately opens a window to gnosis and that's the big dichotomy in old Gnosticism. Pistis, face, faith versus gnosis, knowledge. You're, you're getting firsthand knowledge of the subtle aspects of, of experiences, the qualities of experience. Um, and that doesn't mean faith goes out the window. We still have to have faith because you put you put 10 years between yourself and a moment of gnosis and epiphany, and you'll come to doubt that gnosis. You'll come to think, well, I was just on a drug or you know, did that even happen? You know, doubt always creeps in. And that's where we have to fall back on faith as in having faith in our moment of gnosis to say, no, I might not know now, but at that moment, I knew I had no question in my mind that that there was something else going going on here. Um, so I think that, that if that's, does that, does that answer your question? Absolutely. Yeah. That was really beautifully put because uh, in general um, with this show, and I think, uh, you know, the listeners would agree. um, Part of the fascination here isn't just the research, you know, it's a lot to do with the research, but it's also like the, the, the people that are interested in the research and why they're interested uh, because that really is part of the whole process. Um, And in alchemy, I think is uh, is so rich for me because it is one of the few things where, um, like the process is the study. And um, um, with how you know, so you you were raised in the South. Uh, where are you from specifically? You're from uh, Oklahoma. No, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. I okay. grew up in um, in a little town in Mississippi called Myrtle, Mississippi. Um, when I Got turned it. around, um, I don't know, maybe 12 or 13, uh, I went and to stay with my father in Pennsylvania. 
So I spent some of my teen years up there, but uh, okay. came back down south. I did live in Oklahoma when I was working as a, a master, excuse me, a master grower for a, a medical cannabis company out there. <laughs> and that was in 2016. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I gradually migrated back down south, where, which I call the Holy Land because of the, the mushrooms. They're just, um, I've never been anywhere else in the, in the country where they're everywhere. I mean, every cow field you pass, you're counting the mushrooms you see as you drive by. It's, it really is something. Yeah. It's funny. You should say that. Um, but the, the whole mystical quality of, uh, of the area around here. Um, I was born in Georgia, uh, but then my family, um, mm. but I was military related. My dad wasn't military. But my grandpa was, um, and great grandpa, grandpa's dad was actually um uh, a 32nd degree uh mason of the scottish right never really got to mm, talk to cool. him yeah i i never got to really get like a really meaty philosophical conversation with him because i was so young but i do have his fez today which i i very much cherish and uh so his i know Schreiner fez yeah yeah um nice. you're an active uh mason are you yeah yeah i'm uh, um 32nd degree in the scottish right i've taken very the nice. right degrees um yeah I, I it absolutely changed my life so you're full-on illuminati now oh yeah yeah, nice, <laughs> nice. And all. yeah. well uh i i i don't know if we'll get to it in this conversation uh but i look forward to having a conversation with you about that because i mean every organization can be corrupt but i uh i really appreciate the positive aspects of masonry but anyway i digress a little bit um so Born in Georgia, um, raised in Alaska, and spent a lot of time all around the West Coast. And now I'm back in Florida, uh, or I'm in Florida and uh, pretty close to where I was born. And, you know, there's was always something like, you know, raised way up north, but we would consistently come back down to the south. And there was always something just sort of mystical about the south, especially since it was mm-hmm. sort of my, my getaway. Um, but, uh, you know, it was always hot and humid. It was just a totally, it felt like a different planet. And it, it does at times. And it's, <laughs> the humidity is unbearable sometimes, but yeah, you know, the, the, here in the South, it, it gets, especially Northerners who have never spent time in the South, they, they often reject the South as kind of ignorant and uncultured, but the number of writers from here faulkner i mean it, it's uh, true musicians you know the birth of the the blues here um and jazz you know it's uh yeah i've i've, I've visited new orleans uh mm-hmm. recently for the first time in my life like last year and uh it was around mardi gras season i went for my birthday so february 22nd so uh i got to see nice. yeah yeah i got to see the whole uh uh, yeah, I mean, sure. There's downsides to any culture, but that and and New Orleans is certainly grimy, and you don't want to go around the wrong corners. But that was that was pretty mystical, dude. I really enjoyed it. Um, um, That's but it, its own it's a, country in itself. New Orleans. It really is. Yeah, no kidding. Um, but so, um, I part of that was I am interested in how you know, essentially growing up in the you know, the Bible belt, how did you come into these eclectic esoteric uh, beliefs that you hold now? 
Um, it was all through psychedelics. Um, <clears throat> nice. My brother and I, we were we were taking a lot of LSD and mushrooms, um, starting around age eleven and twelve. And uh, in the beginning, <laughs> we we saw it as a tool for creativity. We would we would we would paint, we would sculpt, we would write poems. Um, really, just exploring ourselves and our unconscious and our creative side and that's all it was uh, but very quickly with that stuff you start to realize that it, it especially when your doses start increasing you start to realize that what you're infringing upon what you're tampering with transcends the realm of mere art and creativity and mm -hmm. the we ha we had started to have experiences that um, I would characterize as as samadhi of uh, complete union with God and things that we had no frame of reference for. We were raised Southern Baptist and we rejected that you know as soon as we could articulate it. <laughs> um, so we had nowhere to turn um, to try and get a grip uh, on what was happening to us. And we had, we, we read a lot and we were seeing kind of reflections of our experiences in certain Eastern texts uh, in the Tao Te Ching and the Dhammapada. And, um, and we, uh, the Vedas, and we thought these guys are talking about what we're experiencing, but you know, in Myrtle, Mississippi, there's no Hindu temple. There's no Buddhist temple. We didn't know where to go. And the only place I had seen those phrases that I was encountering in those Eastern texts was uh, when I was about um, 10 or 11. I spent the night with a friend and his grandfather had been a Freemason and he had his grandfather's copy of Morals and Dogma by mm -hmm. Albert Pike on the bookshelf. And I remember after smoking a joint with him being stoned and I, I kept looking at that book on the shelf. And finally I got up and walked over there and opened it. And I remember thinking at the time, I have no idea what he's talking about, but I mark my life. I'm going to find out what he's talking about. <laughs> and, uh, and then when we started having those experiences and we're reading about similar language reading similar language in these Eastern texts, I thought this is what he was talking about. This is the, the same things that I was reading in that morals and dogma. Um, and I didn't know at the time, but you know, two of my uncles were Freemasons and. Um, it's and interesting I, I was, how that works. Mm -hmm. Same I, I for me. At a, at a, at a, a Christmas gathering, a family Christmas. And I looked over at his bookshelf and there was morals and dogma. And I said, holy shit, <laughs> are you a Mason? And he's, like, he's like, oh yeah, I've been a Mason for 40 years or something. Uh, and, that's, that's really cool. Mm -hmm, yeah. And he had passed away before I joined, but uh Mainly, I, I waited a long time to join because, to be honest, I didn't think I would get accepted. I didn't think they would let me in. And um, it, it was a big surprise when they did. You know, it just I just had to have the courage to go up there. And and uh, I, I told them exactly. I didn't tell them, I, you know, about the, the psychedelic indulgences, but I told them exactly what was going on philosophically and what I was looking for. And um, and yeah, I got in and and it. it absolutely turned me around uh, you know my, m before that my head was 
completely in the clouds. And while masonry didn't pull my head out of the clouds, it did put my feet on the ground. So I had some balance. Masonry is, it's all centered around um, building symbolism. So uh, you get a very um, visceral, concrete kind of a grasp on these approaches to occultism and magic and you're not taught magic and masonry but you're you're dealing with the same territory and it makes it it really shows you how the magic is in the ordinary just our our everyday lives how we conduct ourselves our relationships we have with people um simple things like that you you see that it's not it's inseparable from the mystical path and uh and it absolutely, yeah, it, it, it helped me. Yeah. Um, I, um, I'm glad you went into it a little more because we should open this up a little bit more. We've got enough time. Um, there's no specific rush or anything like that. Um, and so, and, and it's also, you know, it's interesting how you came across your family members because, uh, um, I, so I went to military school when I was 17 and I had been, uh, pretty interested in like certain psychology and philosophy. And, uh, and so I was familiar um, with some basics like, like Kant and other things like um, not that I fully understood it even, but uh, mm-hmm. um, and so when I went to military school, I had a very cool mentor. Um, he was one of my father's friends. My dad's a retiring police officer in the Anchorage police department. He had this, this, uh, this friend who was, um, this like old school black dude from Brooklyn who uh like lo- you know was growing up at the dawn of hip hop um mm. and he was a he was a cop now in Alaska after retiring from the military um and uh and this guy was extremely into uh like eastern mysticism and taoism and uh he told me about the i ching and things like that and uh uh, we talked about Buddhism and he was really into Kung Fu. Like he would travel to Japan when he could and, and uh, really studied it and things. And uh, um, yeah, shout out to bald monk. That's his nickname, but uh, nice. Um, yeah, really, really genuine dude. Um, but so I got in uh, that. I really sank my teeth into that. Um, got out of military school, did not want anything to do with the military. And uh, um, over time got more, into you know just metaphysics in general and had heard ideas like alchemy and cannabis was in the mix for me as i was understanding that a little more and masonry and because you also mentioned how like an eastern context helped you gauge masonry a bit and looking back on my experience it it was definitely the same for me as well i've heard you know i was pretty hungry for it um but i've heard that some people just you know it's kind of like a brick wall at first because you don't really know what they're talking about but i had just been primed um yeah i was really wanting to and granted i certainly didn't understand it all at once uh and i'm not claiming to understand it all now but uh in terms of being able to catch a glimmer of the practicality of it all just uh with the, the the whole building allegories and um how metaphysics is something that you can get your hands dirty with not in like an ethical way but in like a hard work mm-hmm. sort of way um that was if 
if you take nothing away from, you know, the historical precedents of Freemasonry, I think that that's an invaluable lesson. Um, and it's something that's deeply ingrained in my brain. Like I wouldn't be who I am today without that either. And, uh, that's um, a good point. Yeah. I, uh, uh, people like, and so to, to kind of wrap that up, um, I ended up after kind of coming to those conclusions, um, or realizations and, really becoming you know uh, looking into things like pike and uh becoming enamored with you know people like manly p hall um mm-hmm. I, I and then my grand great grandpa passes and then i find out that he was a 32nd degree mason of the scottish right and it's like wow what the fuck yeah. how about that you know <laughs> yeah yeah he probably said some things that uh in retrospect sounded different after you learned that yeah no kidding this was a fascinating guy like i he's He's kind of mythical in his own right. The stories I hear about him is he would he liked to uh, catch live rattlesnakes and put them in aquariums in his office and things like that. And wow. he was just yeah, he was a wild guy. Um, um, I wish I could have picked his brain more. That's for sure. But um, um, what do you think about um? So for people that might like that are you know clearly if you're listening to this show you're interested in esotericism so i doubt you're fully opposed to masonry but some people are greener than others um and maybe th- you know they've just heard all the uh the common tropes that are around today would you like to i don't know, give a, a as you know it, it's a pretty heady topic but would you like to talk about masonry in any capacity and you know what it might mean in this entheogenic sense because they helped keep that tradition alive in some ways as well even though it was kind of off the books right yeah uh, i mean well lots off the books with masonry because it's it's an oral tradition so Mm -hmm. a lot doesn't get written down it just gets passed down um and you know the the most people's concepts of freemasonry comes out of conspiracy theory and there's so much that's just absolute nonsense about uh-huh. what is passed around and what Masons are doing and the function of it. You know, the, the idea that we could, we could organize world wars or famines and things like that. I mean, to be honest, we can't even agree what we're going to have for dinner at the next meeting. You know, <laughs> there, there's no cabal of, of, uh, of people trying to rule the world. Um, I think I just I think it's hilarious when I hear and it's it always seems to be someone who's not a Mason, you know, that can tell me that what we're doing is worshiping Lucifer and things like that. (laughs) But it's always someone who has no fucking concept of what what we even do. Um, But what Masonry is at its heart, if we if we don't detour too much into the mystical side, we're just going to say practically um, masonry is a rite of passage into deep masculinity, into mature manliness. And by manly, I mean virtus, virtue, um, and all of the spiritual virtues that come along with being a virtuous man. And uh, it, originally, it was a building society. They were actually building cathedrals. And this was at a time when there were no universities to go to. Um, and the way you entered manhood in, in, in anthropology, for example, I believe it was Victor Turner who said that, um, that 
in indigenous cultures, you're not a man until you're made a man and accepted a man by the other men. It, do, it has nothing to do with what age you are, whether you, um, your experiences, you have to be made and accepted a man. We don't have that in our modern culture. We Women have a natural rite of passage into womanhood that they can view and see, and it's when they start menstruating. Men don't have a, 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 a switch that gets cut on like that. And we very much need um, ritual to anchor those transitions and accept them, fully embrace them. And so when you were accepted as an apprentice and entered apprentice in the early days, you were apprenticing under a master mason. And that also, again, it's a job. It's a business back then. So you're also entering the working society, the working world. You're, and it, that's why it was so ingrained with this notion of a rite of passage into manhood and that's continued on today only masonry has kind of become sort of a uh like a, a catch-all for any any ritual activity or teaching that might assist in that transition of moving you from one state to another of uh, of inducing that and anchoring that rite of passage. So practically, I think that's the, the that's the bare bones of it, a, a rite of passage into deep masculinity. And now, of course, since beginning in, I think, France uh, in the 18th century, women were being admitted into masonry. And there are women-only lodges, and there are co-ed lodges called co-masonry. And... Um, I believe that their, their experience is valid, I, but uh, I do think it's okay to be limited to men. You know, no one has a problem with women meeting alone without men present. But when men do it, we're excluding or we're, it's, some, it's always painted as somehow negative, but men need to be with other men. Yeah. Especially young men need to be in the presence of older men. And in Africa, there's, uh, I believe it was among the Bantu in uh, Congo, they have this word, I can't remember the exact word, but it's a word that's used when a young man apprentices under an older man. And the word literally translated me means close enough to smell his stink. <laughs> and I love that because it, it, I, I can honestly say that some of my best friends in the world are in their 80s, you know, early 90s. Um, and prior to masonry, my my circle of friends was limited to my peers, and in a in a society with no rite of passage that's going to pass you into manhood, and you know especially persons with no real male role model role model in their life, that kind of interaction is essential mm -hmm. to to really embracing what it means to be a man and masonry absolutely provides that uh, it, it provides other things too, that would transcend just the simply the, the just the psychological and anthropological domains. But, um, and when I say that women, I'm sure what they're getting out of it is valid. I'll give you an example of my, my wife is involved in an in all women's society called daughters of the moon. That's similar to masonry. It's a three degree system, but it's based around the maiden, mother, and crone trio. And there are okay. rituals that that transition them into 
each of those different states of being when they physically reach those same states. So when they, a crone is a woman who's stopped menstruating, a menopausal woman. So they, and they have rituals that transition them into this, but based on her description of, um, of the mother ritual transition into the mother phase, I was absolutely moved. You know, I thought this is, this is brilliant. What y'all are doing is, is incredible. Um, but I, but that's not for me. I can, I, I can, I'm, it's valid for me. I, I'm getting something out of her telling it to me. I certainly would if I was present, but it's not for me. You know, mm-hmm. I don't belong there. Um, right. And I think that's important for those women to have that space where they can be with other women um, and not worry about what, what the opposite sex is thinking of what's happening in the meantime. And uh, I think the same thing is true for masonry. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, you can see it like there's 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 just an inherent need to sort of be around your own sometimes. That doesn't mean that uh, you don't want to be around other people, you know, people that are different than you. But just like in terms of the sexes, it is super crucial for young men and young women alike to just have a place to. Uh, to be separate from each other, where there's not this massive uh, evolutionary game going on inside of them that they mm-hmm. scarcely understand. And like when there's too much of that, you know, exterior, uh, you know, animalistic in the evolutionary way competition going on, d- d- you really don't. Um, it's a lot harder to sift through all that to get down to the meat of like some existentialist food for thought. And, you know, when, I, when you don't have the option of, of sexual interaction, you know, in a lodge of full, full of men. And if you're a heterosexual man to not have women present completely frees up an entirely different part of the psyche yeah. that uh, allows you to participate in parts of yourself that you just simply don't always have access to mainly because most of your, your energy is wrapped up in this Freudian kind of drive to impress and to, you know, be, be with a woman. And um, I, I I really think it's valid in that regard too, that men meeting with men um, outside of the importance of having access to our elders, which in indigenous communities, that's there's no question. You're so close to your elders that you're probably sick to death of them. But I, you know, I, I the way I grew up, I was surrounded by women. I was the first male born into um, into our family out of all of my aunts, and uh, there were five girls. You know, my mother's one of five sisters, and all of them had girls. So it it was something that I was starving for. Yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah. Um and yeah, the I mean part of the whole alchemical motif is the union of opposites too. So mm-hmm. inherently so much of this is um you know celebrating all aspects of the psyche including the feminine and you know mm-hmm. the misunderstood mm-hmm. aspects of yourself. So it's really a unison and it's 
how you best get to that unison. People focus on like, oh, it's a bunch of dudes hanging out. Uh, but you know, like, it, what are the dudes hanging out for? What are they? What are they talking about? If it's mm-hmm. if they if they leave the meeting and they're better off in all their relationships for it, then what the fuck are we even having this conversation for? Mm-hmm. Um, and we do, there's that's a, that's another misconception. I'm glad you brought that up because um, masonry meets to make masons. We we there are business meetings that take place, and literally the discussions there are. We need to pay the bills. Do we have the money to pay the bills right now? And are there any petitions of men wanting to join? Um, every other meeting, you're meeting to make a Mason. So it's not a group of men talking, chatting, having a conversation. It's a group of men performing a profound ritual, one of three profound rituals. Um, so it, it's less hanging out with other other men, like in that kind of a sense, than it is um a ceremony you're present at a ceremony and just like it at any at, at church or something it's not like that but just like in that kind of a setting there are certain topics you wouldn't breach you know so it's not it's not a group of men being kind of uh you know filthy in the way that men can be you know th- those those kinds of topics are left at the door um and differences are left at the door you know there's a phrase in one of the old entered apprentice rituals where it's talking about the black and white pavement the checkered pavement everything in a masonic temple has a meaning and that meaning is it 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 becomes a mnemonic for an entire lecture basically and one of the phrases that said in regard to that pavement is that it represents just like in a lodge where men of different colors can and different religious backgrounds can sit beside one another and agree on a commonality you know that we we use a generic term like the great architect of the universe because every man that comes you to be a mason you have to believe in god so each of those men have their own gods they believe in that that difference of whether you're believing in the same God as me goes out the door when we use a generic phrase like great architect of the universe. We can all agree that what we're all talking about is the being that surpasses being that somehow created this miracle we're all participating in. So it, it's, um, it's a little bit more than men just hanging out, you know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and it's a shame that some of this gets... um. Uh, just like I said, it immediately thrown out because, you know, people start thinking of historical patriarchies and things. And granted, if we can have the conversation uh, that I'm fully willing to grant that there have been a lot of injustices done because of a, a variety of, um, you know, uh, male oriented things or, you know, what have you. Um, the Yeah, evil the, exists. And, yeah. And, and, and where man is, so will evil be. And a masonic lodge is really a fractal of the entire existence of manhood on the whole planet so the ratio of good to bad is the same inside the lodge as outside the lodge it doesn't change because it's a direct reflection of the whole yeah um and you know on on the subject of uh of of manhood just a little bit um because i did tease it and i'm very interested to hear you give me your your uh your your full blast um 
on your tobacco research. But um, yeah, I, I, I appreciate you going into that a little bit because I think the tradition is, you know, something worth going into. And it it really is um a little bit, you know, like a subtle you know, I don't know, theme for lack of a better term of the show. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't had any female guests on and it's not an intentional thing, but you know, there were almost 50 episodes in and somewhere two thirds of the way through, I sort of dawned on me and, um, and, you know, part of my self-initiation, if you will, was without getting into a lot of detail had to do with similar to your brother, um, out in Alaska, outside of Anchorage, um, several friends of mine, you know, just getting together, uh, um, smoking weed, uh, doing psychedelics, and eventually going down some very profound, like existential rabbit holes, and and getting into Gnosticism and Carl Jung and things. And mm-hmm. um, um, I, there was something really truly powerful about just hanging out with the boys. Um, because it's like, it's not that we didn't want to have women around. Uh, we were like young and we would have been hanging out with women if we could have, but, uh, you know, <laughs> what wasn't in the cards at the moment. And so we're right. making the most out of our friendship and we found, you know, freedom in just the camaraderie. Um, and, um, that's a lot of, you know, without those moments and those, uh, you know, those certain years, um, I wouldn't have some of the habits and the ways I go about things now, especially in like, and that's basically where a lot of the energy, the the nostalgic energy of this, you know, this podcast comes from is because I loved that feeling of just being able to sit down, you know, there's no, there's no sort of evolutionary games going on. There's just, let's, let's maybe smoke some weed and let's hash out some really heady concepts. And, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, so yeah, there will definitely be, uh, ladies on as guests in the future but there's you know there's just something that and i have so much feminine energy in my life i was raised around so many females i have you know i i live with my girlfriend i've got plenty of feminine energy around me um sometimes it's just nice to chill with the boys or your equivalent of that in your life and there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that i've got some names for you if you want some some very brilliant interesting females to bring on i'll, I'll oh that'd be great names yeah. after the interview that would be great. Yeah, because it is something on my list. I need to uh, mix it up a little bit. I have so many uh, so many friends that I've been trying to get through. And uh, now um, pretty soon here, we're going to be branching out into people that I've never talked to before. Um, but it's it's also been really cool. I like the, the last two or three years of doing guest spots. I've made so many friends and I haven't even really had to branch out and contact anybody new. It's just a uh, it's been a matter of, uh, you know, just talking with, um, all the friends I've made so far and that's been awesome. But, uh, that's and, great. Uh, it's a good show. Thank you very much, man. I really appreciate it. Um, and, um, I, uh, you know, I just do what I can, but, uh, uh they, and I'm not going to stop either. There's going to be plenty more to come. Uh, but I really, I've teased it enough. Um, tobacco before we get out of here, man, and there's no rush either. I really want to hear what you have to say is something that's also um, a dare I say sacramental to me. Um, you know, I doing construction and working in kitchens. Sometimes I, I started smoking cigarettes a little bit and then I started smoking American spirits here and there. And eventually that just kind of worked its way into these days. I'll buy um, like some whole leaf tobacco 
and um, I'll sometimes just roll some blunts or roll a spliff. And I'm pretty um, conservative with the tobacco, but I do enjoy it still. And I don't I'm not encouraging people to just start a tobacco habit or anything. But I will say, um, especially as a writer. And, you know, there's the whole there's the whole archetypal theme of the writers uh, and loving their tobacco and amphetamines. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I I certainly love my coffee as well. But, uh, you know, tobacco, sure, it has its carcinogens and, you know, it can be um, addictive. I think it's a bit of a stretch to call it the most addictive on Earth. I think that the science doesn't show that. Um, and it's actually a nootropic in many ways. So I think mm -hmm. that, you know, especially if you're like what some people would say, like a neurodivergent person, which I would certainly fit into that. Um, I found that a responsible use of nicotine at the very least, and even tobacco, has actually benefited me as well. Um mm -hmm. So yeah, I know, what would you say about that, and and as well as like some of the historical sacramental aspects of tobacco? Well, I, I grew up a severe asthmatic, and um, my only exposure to tobacco as a young man was cigarettes, um, and of course I couldn't smoke them, so I had no no idea of what it did or what it could do. Um, but when I started researching the book that I have coming out in 2024 on Native American shamanism, it became clear really fast that tobacco was central to whatever it was they were doing. And I really, I, I want I want to do the Native community justice with this book. And I realized I couldn't do that without some firsthand experience of what exactly they're talking about. And it was at that point that I turned to pipes, pipe smoking and, and cigar smoking, but mainly pipe smoking, which I've, an art I've absolutely fallen in love with. I do I enjoy puffing on a good pipe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's something very, um, very meditative about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and these native traditions that were using tobacco, tobacco is considered extremely holy, sacramental, and they were using it um, as offerings to um, spirits and deities, um, what the Ojibwe called Manitu, the Manitu. Um, and they, they're, of course, chewing it. Um, in South America, they extract the tobacco with um, aguardiente, with a really potent sugarcane liquor. And they snort it and put it up their nose. Um, so there's all these different ways of using it as enemas, um, poultices. Um, and when you read about people going to, to Central America to do those mushrooms, like we talked about earlier with Wasson and Leary, um, Tom Lane talks about he, he had an experience with Maria Sabina and um, she took a, a tobacco paste and rubbed it all, all around his wrists and elbows and the undersides of his arms and uh, that surprised me because I, I've read about the same things in North American native traditions. But the tobacco they were using is something called Nicotiana rustica. The tobacco that we get, um, commercial tobacco, is Nicotiana tobacco. And mm -hmm. Nicotiana rustica, not only does it have three times as much nicotine in it as regular nicotiana tobacco 
it's all, it also contains MAOIs, like what's an ayahuasca, um, right. harming and uh, nor, norharmine, I think it's called. And um, there's even some evidence that tobacco being a nightshade, it, uh, Nicotiana rustica may share some tropane alkaloids with things like Datura, um, Mandrake, and uh, Belladonna, and things like that. Datura is um, another substance that they were, the natives were using. But um, is the central it, motif with tobacco? Does it seem to be like a purge or a cleanse? Um, it depends. I haven't I haven't read any about like a a deliberate purgation, but there is cleansing, sanctification. Going right. On. I get, okay. And, okay. And it's also used in in rites of passage for boys into manhood. And one of the most fascinating things I've found is um, there's this moth called Manduca sexta that in South America, they call it the mother of tobacco because it's the only pollinator of the tobacco plant. And um, this moth will only lay its eggs on tobacco or datura. And when the caterpillar hatches, the larva, it only eats the tobacco or datura or it'll starve. Um, and once it, so this, this, this caterpillar, for most insects, nicotine is a toxin, and, mm -hmm. and they avoid it. Well, this guy has a special protein in his body that allows him to not only not be affected by the nicotine, but he can hold it in his body indefinitely and eject it out of his mouth at <laughs> will as a defense mechanism against predators. And <laughs> there, the this worm, this caterpillar, so he's ejecting nicotine and tropane alkaloids and, and monoamine oxidase inhibitor alkaloids, if it's rustica, which that is what they were using. Uh -huh. they, the boys transitioning into manhood, they would tell them to take these worms and put them in their mouth and to not chew them, but just put them in their mouth. And they will. it, it says that they will spit this blue substance into their mouth. And then they're supposed to spit that substance out like you do tobacco juice. Whoa. So they're, they're using these worms in an entheogenic context, which is incredibly fascinating. To wild. Me. Yeah. And when, when they go through the pupa phase and become a moth, there's evidence still that their body retains those alkaloids and makes them deter predators because the predators don't want to eat something toxic and it makes them bitter. Um, so they may have even been using the moths. We don't. We don't know. Um, they di they didn't have a, a written language. Um, so the pots and bottles, the ceramics, they would keep these substances in. They would label them by drawing the thing on the outside of them that it contains, or making the bottle an effigy of the thing it contains. Mm -hmm. And some of these bottles are effigies of moths and have moths painted on them. Mm. Um, now, when they tested those bottles, um, they tested several of them from Spiro, Oklahoma. Um, well over half of them contained Datura alkaloids. So they either contained Datura or they contained these moths or caterpillars. We don't know which, but the fact that they were using the caterpillars and rites of passage that way opens the possibility that maybe they were using the moths too. But in any case, they were they were getting very inebriated on uh, tobacco and datura. And wow. another fascinating thing about 
tobacco. Um, Chris Van Poole, um, she talks about this in her book uh, on the uh, Casas Grandes, Grandes Shamans, um, how they they would basically overdose themselves on tobacco. And if you take enough nicotine, it causes you to appear as though you're dead. Your respiratory rate is so slow, it's undetectable. Your heartbeat is so weak, it's undetectable. And yeah, I was going to say, isn't nicotine like poisoning? It's basically like a shutdown of your nervous system. It'll it'll shut down your everything and wow. you appear as though you're dead. And for the shamans, this was an, init- an initiation process, oh, oh my killing God. the shaman and then bringing him back from the dead. And interestingly enough, once that happens and they get in that state, they the way they bring them back and jumpstart them is by giving them more tobacco. <laughs> And so they, they, they blow even more tobacco Holy into a lifeless body to wake them back up. And yeah, so nicotine, particularly nicotiana rustica and, and its sister alkaloids it contains, is incredibly visionary, shamanic. Uh, when I first started experimenting with nicotiana rustica, um, I overdid it very quickly because I didn't know what I didn't know what the my limits were. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I was very much experimenting with it. And I overdid it uh, one or two times. And the first time I overdid it, uh, my visual field went, went black. Wow. And, and I, and she also talks about how it wipes out color receptors. So everything becomes this dingy yellow and gray. It looks lifeless. Like you're in the land of the dead. But for me, wow. I, I lost all color and, and and I couldn't see anything. And then all I saw were um, lightning bolts flashing across my vision. And out of these lightning bolts came this this white horse that was covered in blood. And uh, that was my first indication of how visionary tobacco can be. I had no idea that it could do that. Um but again, this this is nicotiana rustica, and um, you know we've started growing rustica and curing it, um, and the the what they call the Virginia way of curing it, and it's just become a, a major part of my life at this point. Yeah, uh, for the listeners out there, um, I you were uh, kind enough to um, uh, give me some of that. Um, nicotiana rustica right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah um and i god damn i it sounds like i didn't smoke quite as much as you like i didn't go like i didn't like put it in like a full pipe um like a traditional pipe tobacco or anything like that um um or tobacco pipe what the fuck am i saying um but what i did enjoy doing with pretty much all of it was rolling it in spliffs and man it was chef's kiss that is like it it's it's clearly much stronger, but and normally in like almost any tobacco I've ever smoked, even the really fine quality stuff, um, it's it's not to say it isn't smooth, but it's just got like I don't know, it's because it's not harsh, but it's harsh for lack of a better term, like more nicotine. If it's very strong, it's just going to kick you kick your ass more. But mm-hmm. uh, but this stuff was so smooth, man. It was um unlike anything else I'd ever smoked, it was, I, so I, I could see how in concentrated doses that could start to get, um, a, a lot more 
like nudge you into and especially combined with other things um mm-hmm. that could get extra psychedelic for sure um right and that and a lot of it it is combined you know and and these indigenous traditions they they would smoke mixtures and i'm sure you've heard of kinny kinnick um, mm-hmm. native american smoking blends originally it didn't contain tobacco but eventually when tobacco spread to basically all of these communities especially in the southeast they started adding tobacco to it but there are other plants in there that have their own psychoactive properties the the blends change with the region and the tribe but in every case there's they seem to contain at the very minimum um red willow bark and when you when you read about um there's a couple of accounts where they talk about smoking the non non-native smoking the red willow bark with the natives and talking about how unlike tobacco this get got them absolutely to where they couldn't even stand up you know so there's even wow he's there and before i thought it just contained um and it does salicylic acid basically aspirin but uh but no it apparently has other properties that i don't think have been fully explored by botanists at this point but i did i i made some according to the way the ojibwe made it and with uh bear berry um bear root um, three or four different ingredients along with the tobacco and after one pipe my hands were shaking so bad i couldn't use them i couldn't pick anything up my whole body was vibrating uh so i i guess there's some kind of uh, uh entourage effect there some kind of synergy yeah. that's taking place but but yeah they were combining it in a lot of cases with other other plants so fascinating all right so it, it, it it's not to say that you haven't described it well um um it's been like really fascinating um i haven't heard um yeah, it's rare that people go into uh, a whole lot of depth about tobacco in general. But and and I think it's it's fairly clear um, what people, especially given like the alchemical context we've already uh, set for the conversation, like it's fairly clear what people are sort of getting out of tobacco. Because that was really cool. I forgot to mention the the dripping jewels uh, description of uh, of of cannabis intoxication. Um, I really liked that. Like, what would you say, how would you describe as a sort of the best sort of uh, catch all, even if it's reductionist, um, like what are um, alchemists, you know, quote unquote, getting out of tobacco usage? Because I think for someone that's just maybe tried a cigarette or maybe just smoked cigarettes, like it, it, it might be. They still might be, you know, because there are people who say still like, I don't know why anyone smokes tobacco. You don't even get high. Like, well, sure, you're not getting high in the traditional sense of smoking a joint, but it's not like you're not getting anything out of it. There's a clear, Mm -hmm. clearly defined buzz or whatever you want to call it. You're getting something out of it. People wouldn't do Mm -hmm. it for nothing. So what is the what is ultimately the mystical transcendental quality of nicotine and tobacco? I think the at the base of it it's just it's incredibly calming and meditative and i'm I'm a like i said a pipe smoker and when you're smoking a pipe it's not like smoking a weed pipe where you're pulling the the smoke into your mouth and then inhaling it mm-hmm. with with tobacco it's more rhythmic you 
You form a seal around the pipe stem with your lips, but instead of pulling with your mouth, you inhale deeply with your nose. And just the nature of the physics of that act fills your mouth with smoke. And once it fills with smoke, you kind of open the crack and let the, of your mouth and let the smoke out. Um, and you do this without stopping. So you get into this rhythmic, almost pranayama-like um, trance state with, with the breathing combined with the nicotine. And it gets... I mean, to me, I've practiced I've practiced yoga and meditation and for decades, and it, it, that's the only thing I could compare it to. The state that I get into with that rhythmic breathing with the pipe is something like what practice of asana and pranayama induce. Now, of course, you push it to its limits, and it'll it'll give you an out-of-body experience. It can make you feel like you're dead um, and it can absolutely induce visions, but I don't think most people are using it that way, especially nicotiana tobacco. Right. Uh, I don't know how much you would have to smoke of nicotiana tobacco. I, I generally smoke uh, a New Orleans blend called Perique, um, which is a very potent nicotiana tobacco. It's more potent because of the way they cure it. Um, and I combine that with Rustica uh, with something else called Dark Fired Kentucky. And those three are the most potent tobaccos that we know of. <laughs> oh, wow. and, and so I, I combine them and it gives it it gives very quickly. I mean, rarely do I need a, an entire bowl uh, of it, um, but also rarely do I smoke less than a bowl. But it it absolutely induces some kind of a meditative state that I don't really get anywhere else except doing traditional yoga and that for hours on end. This you you achieve you achieve the same mental territories in minutes. Um I would absolutely agree. And you know I've quit uh using nicotine in the past and I've honestly just come to the the conclusion that used responsibly, you know, there's all sorts of different things in life that'll kill you. Um, and I think that used responsibly, um, there's a way to, um, you know, uh, unless I guess, you know, because I'm not a geneticist or anything, there's ways to um, ring poorly up in the genetic lottery. But, you know, a little bit of fine quality tobacco, like I said earlier, um, I find to be a really enriching and meditative uh, sort of experience. And um, I think one of the things that attracted me to both tobacco and cannabis um, at an early age, early as in like, you know, once I'm like fresh out of high school, I can do what I want a bit more. And I start um, experimenting a bit more. Those were some trying those things like, man, smoking a spliff. That was some of the first like, inner peace and calm I had ever experienced. I felt like, mm -hmm. um, you know, of course you get glimpses of it, but you get so rattled with life in so many different ways that you kind of maybe even forget where your center is. And, um, sure. You know, self-medication can lead to abuse if you're not careful, but, um, I mean, there's a reason people have been using plants, um, along our evolutionary process 
like throughout our entire evolutionary process. And that includes the psychoactive ones. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure to, you just got to take care of yourself too. You know, yes. if you're inhaling something, take it easy. Don't right. try your best not to do that all day or every day mm-hmm. uh, with a pipe. You, you know, you still run the risk of oral cancers, mouth cancers, brush your teeth, floss, you mm-hmm. know, I, I, you have to take care of yourself and, Amen. I think that's part of the beauty of these things too, is they remind us that we do have to take care of ourselves. We're not immortal. We are frail in some ways. And, um, but I don't think that should exclude tobacco from you. Now, if you have a family where everybody before you, all of your progenitors have had cancer, you're probably predisposed to cancer. And you probably, if you're going to use it, you should use it sparingly, or maybe even just use it topically. You can, you know, we, we make salves out of detura and tobacco Hmm. um, and put them uh, on the body. And that's very much how the, in, in Europe, what they call witch's ointment, flying ointment. That's exactly what that was. These salves with detura and other plants added to them. Um, And that's a safe way to use it. Uh, You know, it it doesn't have to be smoke and it doesn't have to be chewing tobacco. And that's another thing that I really have found very interesting is chewing tobacco, but you can't chew nicotiana rustica. It's just, the, the, it's so potent and <laughs> you, you get the spins really quick. And, uh, but yeah, if, if you're listening and you're thinking about is tobacco for me, I mean, tobacco is for everyone, really. It's, it, it's part of what we're here with. It, it, it's considered a sacred master plant and virtually every uh, native American tradition from South America to Central America, to North America, all the way up into Canada. Um, it just has to do with maintaining the sanctity of the relationship. Anything you do all the time is not sacred. You have to you have to give it its own space and its own time and ritualize it. And uh, you maintain that. And I, I'm certain that the spirits that rule these plants are going to take care of you. Yeah, ma'am. Very well said. Um, and I, I couldn't agree more. Um and that's a that's a huge i think that's probably a great way to wrap it up uh because that's been um one of the biggest takeaways for me in understanding my relationship to these things um um what you said about the usage of these things helps almost in that like totem sort of way remind us of um the order that we need to maintain mm-hmm. in our own lives and i can you know even more than um tobacco surprisingly you know since uh tobacco is clearly addictive and cannabis you know psychologically addictive clearly not physical um you might be up for a few nights if you're a stoner and you don't have any weed but that goes away pretty quick anyway um Mm -hmm. but uh um as someone that has you know chronic um ailments that are thankfully not debilitating um but they could be very cumbersome. I have stomach issues and things that run in the family and it can be a, a, a lot sometimes um, could definitely uh, put me out of situations and, and fuck me up a bit. And um, cannabis, not only did it help with anxiety and things, but it was some of the first physical relief that I ever found. Um, you know, like, thankfully I don't have Crohn's disease, but 
you know, I could get to a point where I just can't eat very much at all. You know, my digestive process is just jammed and it's just fucked up. And, uh, um, so this can definitely help with that. Yeah, no doubt. (laughs) Um, so not only did it help in its own meditative existential ways, but it helped me find some physical relief as well. And it would, it became very easy to, uh, overdo it and then just start abusing it, which I mean, there's worse things you could abuse, but it's still not going to be beneficial for you. And, you know, as someone that does use it daily, um, it's a constant reminder of, um, that I'm thankful for. Um, it's a constant reminder of something to gauge myself with that, um, um, not the only thing, but you know, the, Sometimes you can get wrapped up in the moment and I see myself smoking more weed. And sometimes it's more of a reminder to step back a little bit and maybe try and ground myself further, you know, just as a small example. And right. I think, um, um, yeah, I, I, I highly, you know, and again, I didn't get into when it sounds like you didn't either from your stories, you didn't get into these uh, mindsets and beliefs that you have now specifically because of any any plants, the plants helped you, but they helped foster these things that were in, you know, already sort of dormant. And, uh, um, you know, for that, that is the reason they're sacramental. It's not because, um, it's the only way or it's even the best way necessarily, but you know, it's, it's my, it was the first way for me, you know, there are no visions in a plant. There are no visions in a pill. Those are, are, those come from you you know, those ecstasies are pulled out of you. I agree 100%. They, there are no angels or demons uh, inside of a leaf. They they might be, there might be spirits that rule a leaf. We can't say that as a positive or a negative, but mm-hmm. we can say for certain that the visions we bring, the ecstasies, the epiphanies, we bring them to the table. These things just give us an opportunity to participate in those sides of, of ourselves, of our souls. Amen, dude. Uh, well, PD Newman, thank you so much for coming on. I, I, uh, I truly can't wait to have you back on for a round two. And uh, My I'm pleasure. sure people it's been, been really fun. Um, is there any place that, uh, you know, you want to give out some, um, um, you know, some dates or anything like that for upcoming material uh, before we get out of here? Um, I will be speaking at the uh, upcoming uh, Gaia conference that's happening in Portland um, July 21st to the 23rd. Uh, and um, that I, I think that's the only really close one. So the other date would be just December 5th when, uh, when my theurgy book drops. Well, seriously, man, from the bottom of my heart, I really appreciate it. You, uh, you're a real genuine dude, and um, you know, I had kind of a, a superficially annoying day, and a nice conversation like this helps me remember what the fuck I'm doing in this whole grand scheme of things. So I do. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Yes, sir. Thank you, um, PD Newman. Everybody, uh, this is Black Pity Alchemy. I'm Anthony Tyler. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Um, hope to hear from you next week. Take it easy. Good night.
do to this planet. I can do, do to this planet.